When I buzzed you the other night and said, I'm watching the episode, I commented to you that this is very Taming of the Shrew. And then I went and did my behind-the-scenes research and realized that this is the actual impetus of where this episode started. Although it's, it was originally called Helen of Troyes. True. So I, I really think there's a bunch of influences, of which Taming of the Shrew is clearly one, right. but not the only one. Well, we'll see a few more as we uh, get into some of the behind-the-scene notes. Uh, if I were doing a Hollywood pitch meeting, I would call this uh, Taming of the Shrew meets Star Trek meets Wizard of Oz. I know what you're thinking. You're like, why, why Wizard of Oz? That's a little weird. But not only do we have Petri, a green-skinned alien that looks like the Wicked Witch, but our salvation was hidden on the leading lady all along, what she was wearing. But before we get into that, let's do introductions. My name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. So the excerpt from the TV Guide back in 1968 is... Kirk must tame a shrew when he undertakes a stormy mission of peace, taking a high priestess of a warrior people to marry her enemy's ruler. Elan, a most unwilling bride, has the has the hot air of a Chinese empress and the manners of Henry VIII. <laughs> <laughs> Guess that pretty much sums it up. Of course, I always take uh, a lot of my notes from behind-the-scenes stuff from the uh, book Season 3 of There Will Be Voyages, written by uh, Kushner and Osborne. And they say about this episode that it moves at a brisk pace. And the lesson to be learned from the creative staff's decision concerning the plotting of this, of this uh, episode is, if you're going to copy, copy the best. This episode was written by John Meredith Lucas, obviously the former uh, Star Trek showrunner from last season. As I mentioned last week, Gene Roddenberry was handing out uh, a bunch of the assignments, and uh, John Meredith Lucas was one of the writers he pulled in to help write the beginning of season three. John Meredith Lucas writes, It was Gene Roddenberry's story on which I based my script, and I particularly liked his romance angle because you didn't have the opportunity to do much of that in this kind of show. So, in early drafts of this episode, one of the hardest nut to crack was the character of Elon, as you mentioned, originally named Helen, making her uh, believable and not just a one-note character uh, was the hardest part. And they also didn't want a female character who, like, turned on a dime when suddenly, you know, she uh, falls for Kirk. There wasn't the magical tears in the uh, early drafts of this episode. I still, though, question whether or not she doesn't just turn on a dime. But No, I, I don't think she does. Okay, hit me. So um, I think what she does is she's in league with the Klingons, not just uh, Crichton. And originally she seduces him, uses the tears and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, to keep him busy while her uh, co-conspirator sabotages the ship. And for some time, she is doing this merely to advance her plot. I'm okay. going to stop the wedding. 
by getting the Klingons involved. And, you know, frankly, if I end up doing it, it's better than going through with the wedding, right? Mm -hmm. And if the Klingons are able to to get me out of this situation, then uh, I'll deliver the the system to them and so forth. Um, But as she's doing this, she genuinely falls for Kirk, and it's not quite clear when. But, for example, she thinks that uh, having switched allegiance to Kirk by the time of the battle, when Kirk does not chase after the Klingon and defeat him properly, she's upset. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, well, you won me. Why aren't you defeating him? Right? She's still not clear. Um, right. Which, which brings us into the next phase of her relationship, which she uh, states out loud as all these off-worlder men keep talking about duty and obligation. Yeah. So by the end of the episode, that's where she's at. I guess I have to do this thing. It's, you know, my planet needs it. Uh, the, the council has, you know, set me on this mission. I must do my duty. And so uh, there's this arc, right, in which... Right. In the beginning, she's hostile to Kirk. Then she uh, implements this seduction plan, uh, basically to screw with Kirk, mm-hmm. while uh, the engine room is being uh, sabotaged. And then she falls for Kirk, and then she uh, decides to go through with the thing. Yeah. At the very, very end, because she's kind of resistant, like, Don't, aren't you going to rescue me? Aren't you going to you know, get me out of the situation? Yeah. I mean, I... I've chosen you now, so do this thing. But, you know, that whole uh, phase feels like I'm, you know, I've still seduced you. I still, I want you to be my pawn. I want you to do what I need you to do. Right. Um, as opposed to, you know, let's say an Aristotelian, uh, I now will the best for you. Kind of, you know, she never is really there. <laughs> right. I don't know. I feel like that's really muddy to me. Um, yeah, I don't think subtle, that's 100% clear. Which is one of the things I like about this story. Okay. Right? It's very subtle. I think we get some very subtle acting. Um, I think it's it's some of Shatner's best performances. Mm-hmm. His, uh, uh, you know, showing his, his conflict between the, the fact that he's now been uh, smitten, and I think it's probably biochemical, right? He's been Right. In fact, it's not a romance. It's a you drank a you know I tricked you into drinking a love potion. Yep. And now you're beguiled, right? You don't have any choice in this matter. Um. So like, how is this not a? You know, there's a lot of talk about Harry Potter about these you know love potions, right? Gotcha. I've taken mm-hmm. away your agency. You've fallen in love as a as a magical action of yep. my control, not because you chose to. Uh, you know, that's not cool. But that's how this story works, right? Yeah. You know, uh, she's got this ability with these tears. She gets herself to cry. Uh, he then, not knowing the situation, uh, allows himself to wipe away her tears, becomes beguiled. And, it, you know, you see Shatner's, uh, you know, his slow transformation there in that scene yeah uh you know then results of the kiss and so forth and then uh you know for the rest of the time he's fighting it off yeah 
So you, you get a call from the bridge that the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> uh-huh. And he, you know, he wants to protect his ship, but he's like, he holds that part of his hand where he's been kissed subconsciously. Because yeah. he doesn't realize what's happened yet until McCoy tells him. Um, and he, he kind of looks at her like, uh, I don't want to leave you on the one hand, but on the other hand, I, I he, he has this look of, uh, have, have you been keeping me busy while I should have been doing my duty? Right. You know, he's, he, he's, he has a look that's both betrayal and I don't want to leave. It's very good, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot going on. And he conveys all that. Yeah. Yeah, I think Shatner is, is fantastic in this episode. He's amazing. So after cracking that first nut, making her believable, uh, the next part of it was making Kirk believable, right? Keeping up with the integrity of the character we've already established and maintaining mm-hmm. that during the episode. You've just eloquently discussed that, so we can move on. But yeah, I think that uh, I think that they did a great job with that. Justman then also jokes in a memo to uh, Roddenberry, uh, would you be interested in having the personal guards of Helen composed of beauteous females with band-aids for uniforms? Which we almost get with, uh, at least with Elan at the beginning of this episode. And while this is only a half joke, uh, since Trek was now airing at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, they needed to pull in an order, older audience. So spacesuits might not hook them, but scantily clad women more adult themes, to put it better, uh, might bring in that older audience that's watching at Friday night at uh, 10 o'clock. Also early, there were a lot of comparisons of this episode to Journey of Babel, mm-hmm. some of which got changed, but not a lo- uh, but not all of it. I mean, even just the basic, basic premise of taking important guests from one place to another, and then one of them almost getting killed. Uh, in, in one of the earlier memos, there's, uh, I think, uh, Justin goes through and lists almost 16 similarities between that episode and uh, and this one. And uh, he wasn't the only one. Stan Robertson also wrote Roddenberry about this episode, saying he saw the similarities to, the, to Journey to Babel. He wanted to uh, make two things very clear, Stan Robertson. He said the first one, first being that any episode that was seen as too similar to previous ones in the last two years would be rejected outright. And secondly, he wanted less ship-in-a-bottle episodes and more strange new worlds. Roddenberry, I, go ahead. I feel like you do get strange new worlds when you introduce and develop strange new cultures. Absolutely. That, because, uh, you know, new civilizations is, of course, part of strange new worlds. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, actually uh, Roddenberry goes to point out. He says, look at this episode. We've got the green-skinned alien. We have, you know, Alan and her very barbaric, yet civilized <laughs> world. Uh, he goes to point out that he says if they have space travel, then clearly there must be some sort of civilization to them. So they're not completely barbaric, however. Yeah, so when we learn about their culture and we see how their culture is, is really driving the plot, mm-hmm. and, and we get two you know, two cultures in this episode and how they're conflicting. That's interesting, right? That's new civilizations. And I think that's that's cool. We don't need to necessarily see a strangely colored sky 
and a, and a weird plant that vibrates right. or whatever to go, ooh, strange new worlds. See, now I personally would have brought up the lack of budget, right? I would have been like, right. hey, you know, Paramount's pulling the, the the strings a little bit harder. I've got less money to do uh, everything that I did last season with. Um, you know, hey, to cough up some. I don't know. I would have said I would have mentioned something at least about the money, but he doesn't. Instead, uh, he goes on to remind Stan Robertson that some of the best episodes have been ship in a bottle episodes. And uh, but he then does try to go on to uh, promise the same percentage of ship and planet episodes. However, because of the budget problems that they have, that doesn't end up being very true. In another note to Stan Robertson, Roddenberry not only passes the reins to Freiburg, but also goes on to remind Stan that some of the best episodes of the last few years were also episodes that he that Stan Robertson had initially passed on. So, uh, hey, remember that, he says. Back to the scripting process, Freiburg wasn't a huge fan of John Meredith Lucas's original script, but after reading what else he had on deck, he realized that Alana of Troyes was probably, which he would, by the way, go on to name, was probably the script closest to being ready. So Freiburg then replots the episode and sends it back to Lucas, who rewrites it. It's so good that Freiburg, to Freiburg that he then sends it to script. Like, all right, let's get this mimeoed. Let's start passing this out to the to the cast and everything. However, Roddenberry was not as happy with this and sends more notes saying, let's get back to My Fair Lady. <laughs> that was another uh, right. example. Yeah, because it's, it is a Pygmalion uh, exactly, yeah. story as well. He goes on to say, this is our basic tale. This is our story. The males in our audience will identify with Kirk trying to tame the savage woman. The females in our audience will identify with the strong female being tamed by a real man. The above is the most important criticism of the script, in my opinion. Uh, Cushman and Osborne go on to point out that this is the biggest difference between Freiburg and Roddenberry, and something we'll see more of in the future of this in the future uh, of the season. Once Freiburg was happy with the script, he was good to go. He comes, he comes from TV saying, let's write him quick and then shoot him fast, and then we're done. Right. Whereas Roddenberry was always a perfectionist and a chronic rewriter. Which is how you get good episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. The slap. Okay. Big thing that happens in this episode, obviously. She slaps him, then he slaps her back saying, like, you know, trying to snap her out of it, prove her wrong. Uh, this... Um, Feels something out of the 30s almost, you know. Uh, G, uh, Ron Bear even mentions a scene from Public Enemy with James James Cagney, where he shoves a group grapefruit into his wife's face. But uh, even at this point in the uh, late into the 60s, this kind of violence wasn't as welcome on TV, and so it becomes a hot topic around the production offices as well as with NBC. Freiberger receives a call from Broadcast Sanders demanding that the scene be rewritten or removed, dot, 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 or else. Knowing Roddenberry's feelings about the slap to the face, Freiberger did as much as he could, uh, but he decided to lie to the network and say, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and rewrite it. Gene Messerschmidt of uh, Broadcast Standards followed up with a memo to all concerned, insisting that Freiberg keep his word. Freiburg, of course, had already decided uh, to shoot the scene a little bit, uh, to shoot it two different ways. Roddenberry's way with uh, no hysteria, 
And then uh, Raylan slaps Kirk because he defies her authority, and he slaps back because she defies his. Freiberger, with his revised final draft of May 27th, uh, the same day the memo from Broadcast Standards was received, made two changes to help pacify uh, help pacify Broadcast Standards. First, Elon strikes Kirk not once but twice before the captain retaliates, although the second slap was later edited out. And second, uh, after he hits back, and we think he's gotten the better of her, she lets a knife sail past his ear. She is a woman who can hold her own. This is the proof right. of that. So the Roddenberry Freiberger version of the scene was put into the episode with the hopes that NBC censors would feel differently once they saw how it actually all played out. And obviously that's how it all played out. They were fine with that version of it, where at least she gets a little back by throwing the knife back at him. Right. And you get a sense that like, um, as he tells the other ambassador, right, that she comes from a warrior culture. Yeah. Um, you know, being too civilized, being too polite, being too diplomatic is not going to work. She needs to see uh, strength. When she hits you, you need to, you know, hit back. Yeah. Now, he, he, the other diplomat is not skilled in this world. Right. And, you know, ends up uh, basically taking the knife. Yep. Whereas, uh, you know, Kirk is a little more capable of playing the cat and mouse game. In mm-hmm. fact... There is a parallel story um, in with, with the Klingons, right? So right. she she is using the wounded gazelle strategy against Kirk. Oh, look at me! I'm vulnerable. Come and assist me! Ha ha! I've tricked you. Now my man is downstairs. You know, they turning your engine into a bomb. <laughs> yeah. And then Kirk will use the exact same strategy. Uh, I have no dilithium. I'm wounded. Come and get me. Get come real close now. Uh, uh, look, really, I have full power. Here are my torpedoes. Um, so it, that's interesting that you have these two strategies working in both plots. Yeah, that's interesting. I had thought about that. That's great. One final rewrite was done by Freiberg and Arthur Singer. They added the magical tears. They also added the scene of McCoy and Spock finding Kirk and Elon kissing, which is great. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the denouement of McCoy finding the antidote, but Spock pointing out that he had already been cured by the Enterprise. So this is really just the Orion slave girls and their pheromones. Right. And it's just you know a new method of delivery, and you know we don't need to have an Orion. We have this other species. Because they don't want to paint another girl green. Well, and you know they're using the same, basically the same plot device in this yeah. different this different story. And of course, Kirk would already know probably about the pheromones. Yeah, because we've met slave girls, or, or have we? I know we do. There will be one. Yeah, we met uh, the pilot. I mean, right, I guess but, Kirk's never met one, but right. I'm sure yeah. it's well known throughout the <laughs> throughout the Federation. Right. There actually is a, a Slave Girl episode coming up. Oh, all right. I do think it's funny that Freiberg refers to this as a romance, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Because to me, it's not a romance. Uh, right. Kirk, Kirk is being tricked by basically an enemy agent, right? Um, and it, it just seems to work better to, like, to understand this as a she tricks him, but then she falls for him in the middle of the trick. 
and Kirk is never quite sure uh, whether he's being betrayed or whether he's just being used or whether she really loves him, right? He's, there's a, an ambivalence there. And he's, he's operating on multiple levels, which I think is what makes it good. Is that he's simultaneously, he's thinking, wait a minute, are you, are you using me for your own ends or are you really in love with me and you want me to do this thing? Or, and he needs Spock there to, to keep reminding him you know, where his duty lies. I mean, to a certain extent, he, he always knows, but he can be, he can be beguiled, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all I got in behind the scenes. Uh, there's some other stuff that uh, we'll get into uh, in the recap, but let's get to it. Captain's log. Stardate. It's five-year mission. Captain's log. Stardate. 4372.5. Diplomatic mission, top secret, the Pelian star system. We have diplomat Petri of Troyes that we are taking to uh, Elos to pick up a, another diplomat. Everything is uh, cloak and dagger. Kirk only knows what he's supposed to, and that's to follow Petri's orders. On the turbo lift, they get a call from Uhura who says that the Elations are ready to beam aboard and are upset about the delay. What delay? Asked Kirk. Well, beam them aboard. Spock, uh, Spock says that this is typically Lacian behavior. The scientists who met them said that the men were vicious and arrogant. Ah, says Bones. The women are special, though. They have a subtle mystical power that drives men wild. Of course, that would come from Bones. Right. And it's interesting because in a lot of ways, Spock's analysis is correct. Mm-hmm. Right. And she fits that mold as well. Right, that she's in this warrior people, and she's going to fight, and she's going to be contentious. Yeah. That it's not like uh, the men are like this, and the women are like that. So in that sense, McCoy is wrong. The important point uh, that he brings along is is the idea that they do have a mystical power. Right. And they sort of hint to it uh, over the episode, but like it, it seems like the women are almost in charge. And that the men are like sort of docile to the women. Obviously not docile. I guess that wasn't the perfect word. But, you know, uh, follow the women's lead. And because uh, there's even the point when when Petri is there in the sick bay and Bones is trying to make the antidote. And he's like, he's like, I, well, the Elysian men have been trying for <laughs> years and years and de- decades to uh, come up with an antidote. So I don't think you're going to find one. But of course, uh as we see these these Federation doctors. Right, yeah. Right, they're, they're quite capable of coming up with cures. Well, I'm sure that the Elysian men never thought it was an infection. Uh, so they come out of the turbo lift and they, we meet our green, green-skinned alien from Troyes. This is Petri. Kirk wants some answers, but Petri says, tells us that we will find out everything we need to know when the Dolman comes aboard. The what? asked Kirk. The Dolman is the most feared person among our people, he says. So that really sets up this. Three Elation guards beam aboard. They are the security. They're to make sure they are there to make sure that there's no trouble for the Dolman. Kirk assures the guards that they are ready for anything. Then the guards kneel. He demands that Petri does so too. And then they beam up the Dolman. 
but it's not a dull man, it's a dull woman. <laughs> Writers trying to check us with their subtle words. And we find out uh, this very quickly as the camera does a pan up from the feet to the head of a lady dressed in a very skimpy Star Trek outfit. Opening credits. Back at it. The guards give them the okay to stand. Kirk well, and Spock. I, I, uh, I think we should add uh, that this is how she wanted her introduction to, to be filmed. Oh, really? Yeah, this was this was her choice. She liked being filmed from the feet up. Oh, that's fun. Uh, the Dolmen uh, give them the okay to stand. Kirk and Spock begin talking among themselves, but permission to speak was not given. Spock raises an eyebrow, but shuts up. The Dolmen looks down her nose at the crew. She asks if Spock is the captain, but he instead introduces Kirk. Petri welcomes her, but too quickly shuts him down and says, we know who you are. Kirk, you may show us to our quarters now. Kirk then steps in and tries to come to some kind of understanding of how this is all going to go, but Petri stops him, pleading with Kirk to just let it go. Obviously, in this kind of situation, we need to be able to have some sort of diplomatic give and take, like, okay, this isn't necessarily how things run here. I know you've got your system, but I'm still in charge of all this. But Petri says no, no, no. Kirk then tells the Dolman that Spock will show her to her quarters and he turns to leave, but permission was not given for him to leave. Kirk smirks and asks for permission, which is granted. He grabs the diplomat by the arm and demands some answers when they get to the corridor. She is to be the wife of the ruler of Troyes. This is a hopeful way to bring about peace, he says. They now have the ability to mutually destroy each other and they've been at war for a long time. This will hopefully end it. So I got a lot of vibes that reminded me of maybe more 19th century um, American diplomats serving a republic in a world of monarchies, right? In which American diplomats are insisting that, like, we're from an egalitarian society. We do not bow. We do not, you know, part, you know participate in your royal, you know, uh, Stuff where we're all, you know, from a republic, right? Um, we're egalitarian. Um, we, you know, we all dress the same. You can't, you know, there are no aristocrats among us. Kind of a, a thing. And and he's constantly standing up for that's not how things work on this ship, right? And she's demanding this kind of, uh, you know, like I am royalty. Although apparently you mentioned she's a high priestess. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, I get a lot of that throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Kirk is then excited and he says, great, back to Troyes. But Petri says, no, no, slowly. In her current state, my people would never accept her. Petri is to be the teacher. They have a lot riding on this, as does the Federation, and he demands Kirk's cooperation. If this mission fails, it will be catastrophic for their relationship with the Federation. Oh, boy. Really heaping on the, uh, heaping on the, the, the stuff for Pearl Kirk here. You know, it's, it's funny that... Uh... So you have this idea that the council on her planet wants this piece to work, uh -huh. right? But for whatever reason, like, don't get buy-in from her. So I'm like, I'm wondering, like, do they just not get how difficult this will be? Very possible, right? Don't understand the complexities. Yeah. 
do they think that she's going to do her duty? That doesn't seem to be a part of her culture, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise she would be talking about how she's not going to do that thing, right? Right. But but instead, she seems like oblivious to it. It's something she discovers about it, like off-worlder men are talking about stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, uh, my counsel expects of me X, but I'm not doing X. So uh, I, I'm, you know, a little, a little more elaboration there would have been interesting. Yeah, get a little more clear on the uh, on, on how they all the politics work. Yeah, because obviously get, he does we get a lot of his... her culture. Uh huh. We get a lot of her culture. We don't get a lot of their politics. Yeah. And like, why it is that like her country has sent her to to do this without getting her buy-in? And you know, my. My guess is that they, you know, just my, my sense of it, without any kind of backup from the script, is that they just thought that the other culture would, would also be committed to peace and just, like, put up with whatever, because, like, that's how it works. <laughs> Maybe. And, and they're like, no. <laughs> or like you said, they just had no She's idea. She's got to be accepted by our people. Yeah. Or they just had no idea how, how, how difficult it was going to be, like you said. Yeah. Kirk makes his way to the bridge, tells the helm to lay in a cor- course to Troyus on impulse power, 0.32 speed. I love how Scotty steps in there and is like, you know, that's going to take a really long time. Kirk's like, I know. You got something to do. <laughs> also, uh, I called him Scotty Exposition there. Yeah. And yeah, he Before... does a lot of that in this episode. Yes, absolutely. Before uh, Spock steps in here, the bridge looks uh, a little darker than normal. Didn't you think that in this episode that the bridge looked like it has like this always this shadow on like the, the the left side of the screen? Well, you know, I noticed at various points we were getting some of that dramatic Kirk lighting. Uh huh. And I think the the reason, you know, is was so that you don't have a, a well lit bridge, and then suddenly you've got Kirk's eyes illuminated in shadow, and you're like. What's this like? Where'd this shadow come from? Where's the darkness? Right, exactly. Spock arrives to tell us that the Dolman is unsatisfied with her quarters. Uhura is extra pissed because she gave up her cabin so that uh, the Dolman could be there. Kirk enters as Petri shows the wedding shoes, the wedding dress, the sacred royal necklaces. She rejects them all. She then yells at her guards for allowing Kirk to enter. They were like, you you called for him. You said you were not happy with the." Kirk then tries to tell them that Uhura gave up her quarters for her, but she does not like it at all. She doesn't like all the pillows. You think I'm soft? Take this garbage uh, with you when you leave, she demands of Petri. She then demands of Kirk better quarters, but he says, ah, there aren't any. This is, you're stuck with this. I will not be humiliated in this way. Kirk's like, oh, whatever. And he turns to leave. I did not give you permission to leave. Well, I didn't ask for it, says Kirk as he leaves. Petri's like, I can't do this. I'm done. She's histrionic. When she acts like that, it makes me understand why we want to kill her people. Wow. This does nicely set up the stakes, right? 
yeah. that these are these are two peoples who just left to their own devices are going to fight perpetually because mm-hmm. they can't stand each other. So a little behind the curtain here, uh, I was thinking about this as we got towards the end and as I was reading some of like how efficient the script is and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, exactly. Like this, this not only moves along very great, but it, it gives us all the important information in these really quick pieces of dialogue. And so I find when we get to these episodes and I have to, you know, write the notes for them, there are some episodes like last week where I can like big, you know, write big, you know, like open pieces like here this happens and then this and blah 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 but then i find that there are certain episodes where i'm like i literally have to write down pieces of dialogue because you know everything that we need to know mm-hmm. is like here and then gone and you know it's like oh you missed that piece of dialogue and now you're like what happened or how did they how did this change or what are we missing so i i think i think yeah obviously you're right it's little pieces of dialogue just like that where all of a sudden oh okay great you missed that and you're like okay i've missed an important <laughs> uh, piece of world building here because this is a in a good, well-written, you know, like where we go back and we, we fix the problems. Right. You get a lot of scenes that are doing two things simultaneously. I'm building some world and I'm establishing some plot simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And now you realize why we must do X and you're like, oh, interesting. I learned something about your culture. I realize why the conflict must be such as it is. Right. And why the stakes rise. Yeah. Kirk tells Petri, well, try a new way. Try something new. She reacts to strength. Be strong. On the bridge, the Spock is noticing a weird sensor ghost. But Spock has run all the tests. We also says get, like, a sense out of... We also get a lot of a sense out of Kirk. Like, that he's the skilled diplomat. Been here yep. before. I know how this work plays out. First, you have to establish, right, that there's going to be cooperation. Then mm-hmm. you figure out how to cooperate second. Right? You don't figure out how to cooperate first and then get to cooperation. That'll never work. You have to be committed to making this work. Right. And I'm like, he's, he's actually quite on top of things. He knows what he's talking about. It's like exactly. he's done this before. Whereas Petri, apparently, I mean, I guess he's, they, they don't have a lot of really skilled diplomats in, uh, on their planet. Well, what I get the sense of is that he's been accustomed to being a diplomat amongst the, his own people. Yes. Right. So he knows how to ingratiate himself with people like himself. Mm-hmm. On the bridge, there appears to be a sensor ghost, Spock sees, but he's run all the tests and the sensors are fine. Possible spaceship, asked Kirk. I thought that was weird that he said spaceship, but. Okay. But before there's an answer to that, Scott calls up on the intercom. He's annoyed that there are relations down in the engineering messing with his stuff. Kirk tells, all right, just don't do anything silly and I will be right down there. We get down there and Kirk arrives just in time to see the dolman call Scott menial because his wor- he works with the engines. Scott was about to give him what for when Kirk arrives and says, Scotty, calm down. All right, let's just not do anything here. Kirk has a back and forth. Engineering is for menials. Exactly. <laughs> Kirk has a back and forth with the dolman trying to teach her courtesy. That doesn't exactly work as she just walks off. Spock calls down to uh, 
to let us know the sensor ghost is moving closer. And when we get back to the bridge, we find out it's the Klingons. So what we get here is she is like implementing her plot, right? Mm -hmm. They need access to the to the engineering. engineering room, so they have gone down to like scope things out. Yeah, Und under the cover of how does your fancy spaceship work? We are your honored guests. You know, show us the the one room that we want access to. We want to figure out how things work down here. Yeah, you know, we we we're not interested. She insults it like. Engineering is for me. Then why are you here? <laughs> Other than like you have a plot to carry out, right? Right. She doesn't want to see the phaser bays. She doesn't want to see the torpedoes. She doesn't want to see the fighting part of the ship, which yeah. clearly, you know, when you talk to her, that's the only part that she's interested in. And yet here she is, where the plot will will transpire. That's right. A little later, we get a call from security. There is a disturbance in the Dolman's quarters. Kirk gives this amazing gesture that is basically like, can you believe this? You take the con. I'm going to yeah. go over there. That's great. I love, love, love that little, little, little bit. Yeah. When Kirk arrives, the guards won't let him answer or won't let him in. But the Dolman then uh, exits, asking her guards to remove this Trojan pig. And when Kirk enters, he finds Petri on the floor with a dagger in his back. Dun, dun, dun. Commercial. Back at it, we are in sickbay, looking at Petri's vitals. Deep wound, but luckily he's going to be okay. He blames Kirk. Kirk says, I told you to be strong, not get in a fight with her. Uhura shows up uh, and lets us know that the Federation High Commissioner is attending the Trojan Royal Wedding. Again, just upping those stakes, letting us know it's going to be a little bit more cray. Cut back to chapel at Petri's bedside. She asks, if Alasian women are so vicious, then why are men attracted to them? What is their magic, she asks. Petri explains it's not magic, it's biochemical. If her tears touch any part of a man, he will love her forever. Cut to Kirk in her room. He is trying to reason with her, but it's not going well. You have a military. You must understand. My, uh, my, uh, you must understand orders. Mine are to take you to Troyes. She doesn't care. He tries to tell her that they still have a problem, her indoctrination. I took care of that problem, she says. You took care of the teacher. You need a new one. <laughs> what can you teach me, she says. How about table manners to start? This is a plate. This is a knife. Take me back to Elos, she yells. It's impossible, he says. If you don't like your obligations of being a dolman, then why don't you give up the title? No one talks to me that way, she says. Uh, that's another problem. No one has told you that you are an uncultured savage, a vicious child. She slaps Kirk. Boom. He slaps her back. Boom. He then turns to leave, but she throws the knife at him. Funny side note, by the way, that's really Shatner walking away as the knife sails towards the wall. Back on the bridge, Kirk tells Uhura to open a frequency to the Klingons to let them know who we are and to ask the Klingons his intentions. We then see the Elation guard skulking about engineering. He opens the panel, which opens another panel, and then adjusts it. We get no response from the hailing from the Klingons. 
It is then that the Elysian guard is caught by a red shirt. Ah, but he kills him. Dun, 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 commercial. Back at it, the guard continues messing around with things in engineering. Kirk tries to enter the Dolman's room, but the guards refuse. They then, he tries to push past them, but then Kirk, uh, they push Kirk away and are set to attack uh, Kirk before being stunned by Spock. Spock is impressed that he read the situation right, but does not understand the illogical thought behind it all. Women for you. It's basically what Kirk says. Yeah, Kirk so then, we, we do right. get some, you know, like, uh, I don't know, pre, pre-second wave feminism, uh, you're thinking from, from Kirk, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, Ultimately comes down to the line that we see, I think a little bit later, uh, Vulcan women are logical. And like, they're the only women in the galaxy who can make that claim. Yeah. Kirk then enters and Elaine is immediately, goes to stab him. He grabs her arm. It is illegal for you to touch a member of the royal family. We are not on Elas. We are on my starship. She then bites him and then runs to hide in... (laughs) the bathroom, saying that she will stay there for 10 light years if she has to. Is light years a measure of time? No. Is this like a Kessel Run Parsec thing from Star Wars all over again? Could be. Kirk says, uh, if I can't teach you, then I will send down Spock or Dr. McCoy. I would love to see either of those, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Spock, Spock just like, she tries to like stab him and he's just like... As I was saying. <laughs> Kirk then starts to leave, but then Elon runs out and says, I don't know how to make people like me. So what you're thinking is that this is part of her plot, right? That this is how she's going to make tears happen, and this right. is how she's going to make him touch his tears. Okay. Kirk then tries to make her feel better, even going so far as to wipe her tears. Uh Uh-oh. I guess he didn't hear what they were talking about. Kirk then starts to feel woozy. Now, this is part of what you were saying is the genius of this, is that he tries to leave, but he can't leave. And then he kisses her instead. Mm -hmm. You know, like you do. So this is another one of these episodes in which... You look at the trailer and you get this kiss, right? And you're like, oh, it's it's Kirk being Kirk again. But in fact, this is not like he, he's not participating in this voluntarily. Right. He has been coerced mm-hmm. by the biochemical agent that has been introduced. Right. Well, uh, so it's interesting, uh, and you and I were starting to talk about it before the uh, before we started recording, is that uh, this is technically not the first interracial kiss on tv or or the the one that's coming up in play-doh stepchildren right the one that's coming i mean she is uh, yeah so she was born in france uh uh but she was obviously vietnamese she has that in ancestry in her so and and they're playing they're playing it up right so there are other photos you can find of our uh guest star in which she looks, you know, she's got her hair colored blonde. She looks a little more European. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but here with the dark hair, and it, they kind of go for an Egyptian aesthetic in her costume. Right, like a Cleopatra thing, yeah. Right, which I think uh, gives us a nice contrast because she's looking more Asian in this role. Yeah. Um, so you get a kind of mixed, uh, it's not clear what they're going for, which is good because it's supposed to be alien, not the I am the Egyptian or I am the Asian. Right. And uh, I, I think the reason that this is not the famous interracial kiss is because Anglo-Asian romance had become normalized by this time. So, mm-hmm. for, for example, uh, our actress had already had a relationship with Marlon Brando, who was famous for liking Asian women. Uh, you had the fact that Shatner and she had already worked together in a play, yep. uh, The World of Susie Wong, which was about a British, um, you know, soldier or you know, doing service in Malaysia and then deciding to go to Hong Kong and where he he meets Susie Wong and they have a romance and uh, you know so this kind of this was no longer forbidden. What makes Plato's stepchildren groundbreaking is that this was forbidden. This yeah. this other thing had become normalized. Now in the 1880s when when the chinese are building the the railroads and so forth all these states on the pacific had had laws preventing these chinese immigrants from marrying uh, interestingly enough half of them who do get married end up marrying african american women because it would have been illegal to marry uh, european american women Although the other half do, they end up just not getting formally married. Hmm. So, so you end up with, you know, uh, couples forming, children being born, but not uh, no legal marriage because it's illegal in the West. And so this, you know, we eventually um, both legally and culturally uh, accept Asians as people whom you can marry and have relationships with. In fact, I think by the 50s and 60s, it's become exotic and cool. Mm-hmm. We do, after World War II, in the same way that, that like we really get turned on to Italian culture. Mm-hmm. Right? This is when you get a lot of Italian music, a lot of uh, Italian artists are top of the charts. It's also a time in which we are, we are interested in cool and down with uh, you know, all kinds of Asian cultural elements and, uh, so all the all the legal restrictions had been removed by 1952. Interesting. A couple other quick things about her. Her uh, introduction into Hollywood was in the movie South Pacific. Mm-hmm. The director Josh Logan uh, found her, and then uh, afterwards, after South Pacific, was also the one who was directing the world of Susie Wong on Broadway. And said, if you can learn this by September, then I'll put you up there. As you mentioned, her acting partner in that was William Shatner. They spent a year together doing the show. She even made the cover of Life magazine and won the 1959 Theater Award for her performance. I think one of the reasons you get such good performances from both of them in this uh, in this episode is that they knew each other. They had rapport. Yep. They could act well together. They they. And I'm sure, too, you know, when you are, uh, I say this as a 
actor. Um, when you're in the bubble, <laughs> I can't think of a better word for it. When you're in the bubble of 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 acting with people, a group of people, or with a person, um, and especially in an experience where I'm sure he was on Broadway and he was, you know, he had lots of time to develop his character and really like, you know, make it make it something over the course of that year that he was on stage. Normally how TV works so fast, you may not have that time to be able to right. develop your character and blah, blah, blah. But being put back in that bubble, working against somebody that you have worked with before, I'm sure that just made his acting that much better in this. You also, like when you're working with somebody you know, you can draw in shorthand stuff, mm -hmm. right? So that they can say, why don't I try this? And you're like, I know exactly what you're going for. Let's give that a try rather than let me try this. And like, I don't know what you're doing here. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's let's it's going to take multiple takes. And oh, now I kind of figure it out when we've used a bunch of time up. Right. Instead, they can go straight to I'm thinking of this. Excellent. Let me try that. Oh, that's great. That'll work well together. So Remember that, that scene in the in the show when we did this? Let's do that yeah. again here. Right, right. So she goes and then uh, just before uh, Star Trek, she goes and does a bit part on I Spy. Mm -hmm. And then ends up marrying Robert Culp. So that's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's another example of the East meets West romance, um, you know, being just something that was socially acceptable and or or maybe a little bit cool. Right. Exotic and cool right. rather than just. Uh, what are you doing? Sabotaging your career. Yeah. Back to the episode. They kiss. And then she pulls away and she then asks exactly what a spanking is. Mm -hmm. Wow. A little yeah. escape for 68 television, I think. It is, yep. He then uh, kisses her again. Then Ohura finds that there is a tight bean communique coming from inside the ship. And then you already stole my joke. The call oh. is coming from inside the ship. <laughs> yeah, inside the house. <laughs> Get out of the ship. Run, run. <laughs> Uhura tries to hold back. Uh, uh, whoops. Uhura tries to get a hold of Kirk, but is slow to respond. When he finds out that there is an intruder in engineering, he then sends a security down, puts all hands on alert. The whole time, Milan is trying to pet him, but he finally moves away from her and heads to engineering. Yeah, and he looks sad. He, he looks like, you know, maybe he's a little betrayed. Yep. Um, he looks like I gotta go do my duty now, and you're like, oh, there's a lot going on. Is he sad because he's leaving? Is he sad because something bad has happened to the ship? Uh, does he feel betrayed because someone has done something to the ship, or because he feels like she has been intentionally occupying his time when he should have been? Right. Does he feel bad about what he's done, what she's done, with the person who's you know done the bad thing and the ship has done? There's a Bloody lot going above. on. Yeah. The guard is caught in engineering. Kirk demands answers from him, but the guard reminds him that no amount of torture will get the answer you need. Physical torture, yes, says Kirk. Then heads over to the comm. He calls for Spurk. <laughs> who? I have no idea who that is, Spurk. That's the guy from Saturday Night Live who's like his, his brother from Brooklyn. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> hey, what's happening? 
Let's get the mind meld working, eh? <laughs> he then calls Spock down for a mind meld, but then Crichton grabs the guard next to him, grabs his phaser, and then shoots himself. It's as like the red a shirt, <laughs> right? His own version. As the red shirt tries to apologize to Kirk, Kirk blows him off and asks, "What is it he was hiding that he would kill himself for?" He tells Scott to check every relay in engineering. Scott starts to protest, but Kirk says, don't waste your time telling me about it. Get to it. Aye. <laughs> Back in Elon's room, she tells us that Crichton was from a noble family. Yeah, so this feels like a contrived story, does it not? Hmm. You think this is fake? Well, so on the one hand, in a in some of the scripts that we see in episodic television we're just gonna pop in this little piece of exposition and you're like okay whatever but in a well-developed script like this with his layers i feel like oh this comes out of left field mm -hmm. i don't i don't trust this right i think this is a contrivance and so it's possible that this is you know reliable narrator stuff on yeah. the other hand i'm like i'm not buying your narration i think this is an unreliable narrator I think you're just telling me that because you're in on the plot. Yeah. Very possible. She goes on to say that he loved her and was enraged when he heard about the engagement. Why are we talking of this when we can talk of other things? She says, but Kirk's duty holds him strong. A system hangs in the balance. Don't you understand? Elon continues to use her wiles against Kirk. Oh, yeah, she's she's leaning on thick here. Yep. She says, we could use your ship to destroy Troyes, and then together we could rule over the system. Actually, I think she says, you can rule over it. That is true. She does. And he's like, <laughs> who comes up with stuff like this? Exactly. Exactly. She kisses him again. You cannot resist me, my love. Spock and Bones arrive at the door. I love it. Yeah. They spot, They ask to speak to him outside. Kirk doesn't stop, but then he does. But then he doesn't, but then he does. Yeah. They ask to, again to speak with him outside. Bones tells Kirk about the tears. Ah, we need an antidote. Then Sulu calls down to tell us that the Klingons are now heading towards us at warp speed. Red alert. It, it's not just, so there's a, there's a next generation episode in which you have the same thing right the enterprise mm -hmm. is delivering the girl who's supposed to be intended for some other prince so that there could be a peace between them and uh she's like supposed to be self-contained but picard goes and sits on meeting her and then he becomes the like the one that falls in love with her and in the end she's gonna go do her duty but she and, and picard have had a thing yeah and um, you know, so in that sense, it's similar, right? The difference is the, in that case, the, uh, like the biochemistry of it all, right, is mm -hmm. accidental. Here, I think it's entirely intentional on her part, and she's backing it up with other kinds of, you know, uh, seductive tools yeah. in which she's trying to get Kirk to do what she wants. Because apparently throwing knives and hitting people isn't getting her 
you know, what she needs. So she's yeah. going to fall back on plan B. Well, one thing I forgot to mention before Ahura calls down is that her and Kirk are in bed. So right. it certainly seems like it took the next step after the kissing in that in that in that sequence. And it certainly and then in this scene, it kind of really it even feels more that way because Kirk almost calls it a relationship and and all of that stuff. So it really feels yeah. like, oh, this really did take the, the next step, didn't it? And, and we do have the conversation about what happened here was a mistake. Yes, yes, yes. Which yes. kind of feels more like more than just like there was some kissing. Yeah. Kirk makes his way back to the bridge, although he's not looking very confident about it. He's definitely torn. Kirk gives the order to get out of the system and give themselves some maneuvering room. Sulu lays in the course and is about to engage when Scotty calls up and says that the antimatter antimatter pods were set to blow. They cannot go to warp. Dun dun dun. So here, right, we get some Klingon treachery, right, and it, mm-hmm. it puts me in mind of that uh, lower decks episode in which we get the the young lower decks Klingon who's like, "No, we should be honorable. Why are you engaging in treachery?" and yeah. You know, as, as we should remember, that captain was actually the, the like, the real Klingon. Uh-huh. And the young, idealistic guy, no, we're in a warrior culture, we confront our enemies, we fight in the open. He's like, yeah, that's the Klingon ideal, but it never actually works that way. Uh-huh. Klingons are, like, from the beginning, willing to, like, uh, you know, I've, I've made my alliance with this dolman, and, you know, she and her people are going to, uh, do this thing, and I'm going to give them the plan so that because obviously it's not like th- these guys with their uh, what is uh, S- Scotty described that they basically got like atomic energy as the propulsion for their ships, right? Yeah, that they're going to know how to sabotage a, a dilithium antimatter engine, except for the fact that the Klingons have passed on here's how you do it. You're going to connect relay A to relay B. You're going to put the red wire to the green wire. You're going to swap this out. Once you've done that, you basically turn their engine into a bomb. Okay, I understand the plans. I'll carry it out. Then she will, you know, contrive this thing. And we got a good look at the engine room. Okay, here's what we got to do. So you know what you're doing right now? Okay, good. And then he's going to carry out his plan. Okay, now we go off to do this. I'll keep the captain busy. And, you know, this is a this is basically a Klingon plot. Yeah. Not uh. I, I see my enemy. I declare myself. We confront them. To the best man goes the glory. You know, that, right. That's the ideology. The reality is, <laughs> secret plans. Back from commercial, the Klingons are moving in. Kirk tells Spock to find a solution to the bomb. Kirk gets phasers ready. And then Elaine shows up on the bridge. Get her the hell off the bridge. That was me, not Kirk. <laughs> Uh, but Kirk doesn't fire. No. This is, this is where we get some of that, that shadowed lighting. Yeah. It's because Kirk uh, has realized that they weren't going to fire. They were just trying to push them into going to warp to blow up the ship. Then Spock yeah. asks the million-dollar questions. What do the Klingons want with this system? Kirk just stares at Elon. Then Spock asks the question I just asked. Is this the proper place for the Dolman? Kirk uh, comes back with a, don't question my, but then he stops. He thanks Spock. He then sends Elaine back down to sickbay. 
quite smart, even under the influence. I, you I kinda, are. Yeah, good. and I felt this was a, uh, um, I guess it's a second movie where you've got the Kirstie Alley character who keeps quoting regulations and, uh, you know, at some point, you know, Kirk is, keep quoting those regulations. Yep. <laughs> he tells Alan, you're ruining my efficiency and my ability to protect you. On the turbolith, Kirk uh, is heading back to sickbay with Alan. Kirk doesn't even look at her. Yeah. She asks him, is this, uh, if his mission is still to take her to Troyes? Yes, he says. One of the things I feel like is that her culture probably has heroic warriors, mm-hmm. not loyal, dedicated soldiers who are part of a large organization that's impersonal and gives you orders and you just carry out your peace. Instead, right. you'd go, well, we, we need to take such and such a hill or we need to take such an objective or we need to do this thing. Who is the right heroic warrior for the job? And then we just go, okay, it's you. Do you do you? Do you. However you do this, you do it. And then he'll come up with his own plan, his own scheme, and he's just like a loose cannon, right? And so, you know, we're like, we're going to pick Achilles to do the thing, and then Achilles just does whatever Achilles is going to do, right? It's not like he's going to follow a plan or, like, do what he's told. And I think that's what's going on in their culture. And so she's kind of like, uh, why are you not just, you know, doing whatever that you want? They've sent you to do this mission and you've fallen for me. Why don't you just like do your own thing? Right. I, I, I don't do my own thing. I follow instructions. I, I carry out my orders. I'm I have obligations. I, yeah. Do you want me to wear or I'll wear my wedding dress for another man? Yes. Does it make you happy? He doesn't have to answer that one as the calm chimes. Scott tells us the animator converter is fused. There'll be very little energy available. He sends her back to sickbay. That's the safest place for you as he heads back up to the bridge. McCoy is working on the antidote, but Petrus, as I've said, tells him that the Elysian men have tried forever to find one. McCoy says, yeah, but it's my time to waste. Alan then shows up in sickbay. Back on the bridge, the Klingons demand the Enterprise stop and prepare to be boarded. Dun, dun, dun. So this is part of where it gets all muddy for me, right? Because the Klingons are, I mean, so basically the Klingons are also prepared to blow up the ship, I guess, if they have to. And I guess Elon is okay with that. I mean, like you said, I guess it's better than having to do what she ha- she's supposed to do. But then is the council involved in this? Uh, the council, is it the council who made a deal with the, with the Klingons or is it oh, just yeah. them? I don't think so. I think, I think she's made, she's a, um, so, you know, as we think about Klingon politics, there's always factions in some house that can yeah. be bought off by some foreign power. And that's what's going on here. She doesn't want to do this. And so she was willing to be bought off by the Klingons with promises of either we'll get you out and you'll be free or you'll die. And you won't have to go through with this horrible, horrible, you know, uh, marriage that someone else has arranged for you. Well, things are looking grim. That's for sure. Back in sickbay, Petri asks, as they are about to die, if Elon would please wear the stecklace of his people, which she decides to do. Although she does dig at him and saying, that's all you men of other worlds speak of, duty and responsibility. 
Back on the bridge, Kirk is hoping to buy time, opening hailing frequencies. This is Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise, our Federation business. On Federation business, our mission is peaceful, but we are not going to accept any interference. The Klingon responds, prepare to be boarded or be destroyed. Signal out. Kirk says, well, I guess that didn't work. Elan returns to the bridge now, not only wearing the necklace, but uh, another outfit out of nowhere. Kirk goes to her and tells her to go back to sitbay. She says, it's, the, no. it's the wedding gown. We saw it folded up earlier. Oh, that's right. Good call. Good call. She says, no, I want to die with you. We're not going to die today. Now get off the bridge. But before she can get off the bridge, the Klingons attack. Kirk is back into battle mode. Stay with the controls. Keep the forward shields up. The Klingons flank. Kirk orders Sulu to turn her about, but the ship won't move fast enough on impulse power. What? Are you supposed to question that or just blah, 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 that one? So, um, I, I think they get a sense that like when they have the, the antimatter power running, that they just got more power and they can just turn faster. Oh, okay. And without that power source operating merely on the fusion drives, they're they're turning slowly. She's sluggish. But I I do get the feel like you know when you're playing Star Trek Online and you're doing stuff like managing your shields by turning. This was also a feature of the 1970s uh, game, uh, Starfleet Battles, in which you'd basically have hash marks. That you would make in these boxes. I've lost as much as shields. I'm, I got to turn my ship to these facings. Now I'm limited to the, these arcs of my weapons. You know, very fun tactical stuff to be doing. And here it is in the show. <laughs> Love it. The Klingons then break off the attack as Spock finds weird energy readings coming from Milan. They scan her. The call is coming from inside the house <laughs> again. <laughs> It's the necklace that Petra gave her. Common crystals? Oh, but these are no common crystals. They're dilithium crystals. And now we know why the Klingons want this system so badly. Kirk hands them to Spock to take down to Scotty. Kirk moves Elan to a chair on the bridge. He gives Sulu a vector. They dodge a shot from the Klingons. The Klingons hail again. We know your systems are low. Surrender now, they say. Sulu gives a dire energy report. It's not looking good. Kirk hails them back. He requests term for terms for a surrender. The Klingons yeah, snipe back. He's clearly buying time. Yes. We know Kirk isn't going to surrender. No. Condition, conditions for surrender are unconditional and immediate, says the Klingon. Kirk calls down to engineering to get a time check. Scott wants to run some tests, but Kirk says, can we just do those tests in combat? Spock thinks this is a bad idea. These are crude crystals, he says. Kirk wants to know when they are in place. Let me know. Ben hails the Klingons again. Will you at least guarantee the safety of our passenger, the Dolman of Elas? No conditions, says the Klingon as he starts his run. But luckily, Scott has gotten the crystals into place. He calls the calls, uh, so, calls up to the like, bridge. In my uh, you know more complex reading here, right? Yeah. Um, so is this Kirk just buying time? Or is it Kirk, one, buying time, and two, showing the Dolman, yeah, your Klingon allies? 
Yeah, they're not they're not really your friends. Maybe? I know the Klingons. I know these Klingons pretty well. <laughs> yeah. He then tells Chekhov to get warp maneuvers ready. Whatever those are. Kirk then tells Sulu to let them get as close as possible. Then for Chekhov to give him a full spread of torpedoes. The engineers return from the turbo lift. Fluctuations are already happening. This isn't going to be good. It's the shape of the crystals, says Scotty. Just as the Klingons fire, Sulu opens full power to the shields and then warp factor two. The Klingons fire, fire again as they move in closer. Yeah, this, is some, yells, this is some Picard maneuver level stuff, right? Right. Kirk orders for a full torpedo spread. Now the Klingons are damaged and they limp away. Kirk moves to Ilan to take her back downstairs, but she asks, are you not going to finish them off? Kirk shakes his head no. She looks disappointedly at him. Yeah. They arrive at Troyes. In the transporter room, Ilan asks Kirk, will you come to the wedding ceremony? He shakes his head no. She hands him her knife. People on Troyes don't wear such things, she says. Remember me? I have no choice, he responds. Nor I, she says, but we all have our duties and obligations. He nods. Later on the bridge, McCoy arrives on the turbo lift and tells Spock that he has found the antidote for the Elysian Tears. It's some kind of infection. Dr. McCoy, it seems that the captain has found his own antidote. The Enterprise infected him well before it landed. I guess there's no cure for the Enterprise, says McCoy. In this particular instance, Doctor, I will agree with you. <laughs> and off they go at Warp Factor 2. Credits! So it's interesting because I think, and we've talked about this many times before, and we're very excited that uh, the... Uh, the new Pike show will do it. But I think that this is one of those instances where we could use a little bit more of like Kirk in the next episode being like, God, still not over that girl or, you know, whatever right. it would be nice, but nope, we don't get it. And, you know, uh, one of the it, in episodic television, there's, it seems like there's so much time between episodes that, the audience forgets the previous episode. Yeah. We don't, without a last time on Star Trek. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was the one where she falls in love. Okay, now I get this complaining about the girl. Otherwise, you're like, who's this girl they're complaining about? I don't remember. Yeah. I didn't watch last week. I was off at the football game. Interestingly, so uh, just recently in uh, Chicago at one of the conventions, Nana Visitor was talking about how her character in... DS9 mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, regarded, uh, the fans didn't like her. She was too angry. And mm. when you can watch it on streaming back to back, you're like, oh, this is a, you know, it's a character point, right? Her world has been uh, occupied and that's, and she's a, a rebel fighter and that's why she is the way she is. Yeah. Whereas, when you watch it weekly, you're like, why is she angry all the time? I don't get it. Because <laughs> apparently you can't remember from last week, you know, what's going on, what the situation is. That's interesting. It's, it's like we all come to weekly television, like, with no memory of the past. 
and it is true when you when you string when you uh, what is it called when you watch things in that sequence all at once. Not binge. Yeah, when you binge something, right? You see all those pieces next to each other, and you can see the arcs, and you can see all those, you know, the character development, and you know, when you watch it across many weeks, you're like, there's a lot of forgetting that goes on, an awful yeah. lot of forgetting. Sometimes that's to the benefit of the show. You know, other times it hurts the show. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. We've discussed this before, too. But, you know, uh, I went back and rewatched Twin Peaks, the, the, the original. And it's very interesting how binging that is a very different experience because when you have the week in between each episode to think about the last episode, to listen to the music, to really get into it, it's like, oh, wow, that's really something. And then, but when you just watch it, boom, 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 it just feels like, wow, this is just flying by. Like everything's yeah. happening so fast and, and like it, nothing has the weight to it that it feels like it used to. Yeah. So yeah, Bitchy can work two different ways. It can be good for a show. It can be bad for a show. It can be good for some parts of a show, but bad for other parts, which changes yeah. the whole experience. It sure does, yeah. Uh, so in the ratings, Trek tied in its first half hour for second place. But in the second half hour, uh, it took second place over the Friday night movie, winning, the, winning second place with 29% of the viewership. So in the uh, so in the second half they were three percent over third place and two percent behind first place. I mean those are just like sure 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 so close. So the fifty year old idea that Trek wasn't uh, good in the ratings still isn't holding water. No, this this was a I think really a situation in which the the network did not understand the show, did not like the show. Part of it was I think. The network wants television to be easy, right? We put it on, the viewers like it, done. And this was a show that was controversial, that would make social statements, that would do what science fiction does, that is imagine a different future that isn't our own. And people would be like, wait, you dealt with complex things and that makes us cranky. Uh -huh. And which is what it's supposed to do, right? Right. You know, because sometimes you're showing stuff that's like, oh, you know, we don't want this future. Let's avoid this. Let's not do this thing. And people are like, I didn't like that thing. Well, you weren't supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Other times, you know, it's like uh, a thinly veiled allegory of our own bad social choices. Look how that could play out. This kind of sucks. We should stop doing this. And then people right. are like, I didn't like your commentary on my peoples or my culture or my situation. Yeah. And so in one sense, the reason Star Trek is still with us is because it dealt with interesting and right. complex issues. Because it did those things. Yeah, but like the, te the, the network is like, can't I just show like a you know, kid throws a slingshot, you know, and then like it has to be resolved in half an hour and dad is wise and like everyone's happy with that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why can't we do the easy TV? Our job here is not to do art. This is a yeah. business. I'm selling soap. Yeah. Just make it easy for me to sell soap. <laughs> and so they, they didn't like Star Trek. They just yeah. didn't like it. 
John Meredith Lucas uh, also directed this episode. He wrapped Elana Troyes in seven days instead of the plan six. In the production notes, uh, Lucas was assigned the blame. Justin said that this should have been an easy show. But what the math doesn't take into account for was the uh, was uh, that the script was too long. It was longer than the normal, uh, you know, uh, hour-long episode that they do. And also, on day four of this of this shooting this episode, Robert Kennedy was killed. And yeah. what was even weirder is that the people who had the early call went to bed before it happened, because it happened at, like, midnight. And so people went to bed, and then when they woke up the next day and came into the studio, they found out. In fact, uh, our, our, our great guest star here, France, was was with Robert Culp, very into Robert Kennedy's, um, uh, very into Robert Kennedy's, you know, whole campaign. And so she was very uh, distraught about it. Uh, she didn't end up shooting everything that day to her credit, but um, she was very down that day. So a line of Troyes cost $180,000 back then, exceeding the restrictive budget of $178,000. So now with only two episodes in the can, season three is already in the red, by $5,943, which in today's money is $49,000. A couple of other yeah. interesting... Go ahead. So it's, a, it's an amount that you, you think, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just have some thing where, you know, there's a easy, easy episode in the bottle and, you know, we'll get it done in the six days and we'll, we'll just make up that, that amount of money. Right. Because it's not too big. I mean, when we're talking, you know, a, a million an episode, you know, 50,000 isn't something you, you know, we, we just won't have. We'll, have. we'll do a show where we don't have a lot of special effects. Right. I know, it's crazy. Um, a couple other notes here. <clears throat> In the October 29th, 1968 issue of Daily Variety, Leonard Nimoy was saying, was quoted as saying, I watched 2001. Stanley Kubrick's Space Odyssey film, and my mouth watered at the remarkable effect shots. Taking nothing away from Kubrick, Star Trek would be showing reruns in January if we tried to include those kinds of opticals on our weekly fare. Even if there was the money and the budget to pay for them, they would need to, uh, to complete the project by the air date, which precludes producing this kind of painstaking work. It should also be pointed out that uh, Gene Roddenberry did right this time in terms of story credit. Uh, he was going to ask for it, but then he realized that John Meredith Lucas's pay would be cut in half, as would any future earnings. So he decided to just let it go and have John Meredith Lucas have all the credit. And that is that. That's all I've got down for uh, for this episode. All right. Yeah, it was very great. As you said, I love the performances in this episode. I thought that that was amazing. And um, really tight, well-written. Loved it. Yeah, so this is another episode that I think goes against the notion that the third season is, you know, somehow substandard. Um, which isn't to say that there won't be substandard episodes, but this one clearly not one of them. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, join us back in two weeks for the Paradise Syndrome. I don't know. <laughs> I know nothing. I know nothing about season three at all. I know a little bit about the Enterprise in uh, incident, and I know a little bit about Spock's brain, and uh, that's all I got. So we'll see Paradise Syndrome next time. 
As always, my name is Matt coming to you from Austin and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. I'm a doctor, not a matchmaker. And on that note, we'll see you all in two weeks. Thank you.